Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Vayeshev this morning, and continuing in the book of Genesis, continuing in the novella that is the Joseph story. Fully a quarter of the book of Genesis is this no- self-contained novella, this story of Joseph, um, who, interestingly enough, is not one of the patriarchs, right? So right, it kind of stops after Yaakov. So we get this story of Yosef. We are in the third third of every Torah portion, right? We're reading on a triennial cycle. We're in the third year of the cycle. So we look at the last third of every Torah portion, which puts us at chapter 39, verse 1. We just to set our scene, uh, what happens just before this is the story of Judah and Tamar. Do you remember last year we studied Judah and Tamar? That episode is placed right before this chapter of the Joseph narrative. Remember, there's no early and late in Torah exactly. And uh, there's lots of theories about why that incident with Judah and Tamar is placed here. That's not our mission today. Um, but if we look uh, before that, we uh, have Yosef, who is thrown into the pit, descends into the pit uh, and is sold by his brothers. Instead of being killed, he is sold. Is Ruben's idea. <laughs> thank, you, thank, thank you, Ruben. Thank you, Ruben, for pointing out that it was Ruben's idea, <clears throat> your namesake. And, and he is sold into slavery, sold to Ishmaelites, who then sell him in. He goes down to Egypt. He's sold <clears throat> into the house of Potiphar, where God favors him and he rises to a position of serious authority in the house of Potiphar. All right, so remember when we're dealing with this story, when we're dealing with this novella, we are dealing with the images of descent, darkness, being trapped, and then ascent, right? That That is the... That is the, the Joseph narrative, and it happens many times in his story. The first one is the pit. He descends into the darkness. He descends into the helplessness, the chaos, the powerlessness of the pit, and ascends when his brothers pull him out, because the, the plan was to kill him. You leave him in a pit, and he dies. That was kind of the plan. There's no blood on their hands, but essentially they're murdering him. So he's saved when they pull him out and sell him. So now we're getting the second descent. We're beginning the second descent um, for Yosef at chapter 39, verse 1. Someone please read. Now when Now that he was in the household of his Egyptian master, his master saw that Adonai was with him, and that Adonai was prospering whatever he touched. Joseph, therefore, found favor in his sight and ministered to him. He, Potiphar, gave him... 
I'm sorry? Okay. He gave this him authority over his household and placed all that he owned in his hand. From the time he gave him authority over his household and over all that he owned, Adonai blessed the house of the Egyptian on account of Joseph. The blessing of Adonai was on all that he owned in the house and in the field. He left all that was his in Joseph's hand and gave no thought to what he had other than the food he ate. Okay. And Joseph was, does yours go on there? Yeah. Okay, mine does. Joseph was? Well built and handsome. Well built and handsome. <laughs> he was a stud. He was a stud. This is important for our story. All right, so let's go back, as we always do, to the beginning of that chunk. So Joseph is taken down to Egypt, right? It's always down to Egypt, Right? Egypt is always a descent for the Israelites, right? It's always, it's not good. It's not good. He is taken down to Egypt. So he's been thrown down into the pit. He's come out. Now he's taken down to Egypt. And this person uh, who is Sris Paro, who is an officer of Paro, his name is Potiphar, right? Um, bought him from the Ishmaelites. And what we're told is Yudhe Vavhe et Yosef. Et is a pointing word, and so it's hard to translate into English, but God was towards Yosef. And what does that mean? By he Ishmatzliach. And yo, he became a very successful man. And in the house of his ma- in the house of his master, the Egyptian, the master observes right that everything Yosef touches goes well. In the ancient world, that means the gods smile upon you. Yes. So we might go. Wait, what? Potiphar saw that God was with. Like, just assume in general if if someone does extremely well in everything, it's understood by people in these kinds of ancient. Near Eastern societies that the gods favor this person. Potiphar understands that. And eventually Yosef rises to the place where everything in the house is in his hand, given into his hand. So notice the um, literary phrases we're going to get. Hand, house, blessing, success. These are going to be repeated over and over and over again in the Joseph story. So hand, house, success, uh, and blessing. All right. So he, he knows success. And again, we're told God gave him success to everything he undertook. And Potiphar takes a liking to Yosef, makes him his personal personal attendant says my translation puts him in charge of his household placing in his hands makes him charge of it in charge of the household puts into his hands all that he owned and from the time that the egyptian put him in charge of his household and all that he owned god blessed his house for yaakov for yosef's sake so that the blessing of God was on everything that he owned in the house and outside, right? I'm obviously ridiculously emphasizing, but you can hear, 
right? The themes repeated over and over, blessing, house, success, hands. These are important. He left all that he had in Joseph's hands and with him there, he paid attention to nothing save the food he ate. Why? Didn't have to worry about it. Why is the food he ate the only thing he worries about? Poison. Poison. Exactly. So the everything material he owned, he didn't worry about. He didn't have to think about it. Yosef was in charge. Everything's groovy. You can't be too careful, however, when it comes to the best murder delivery system in the ancient world. Maybe he was a health nut. Maybe he was a vegan. Who knows? Or kosher. Uh, or kosher. All right. Um... And, and also, we have to remember that Egyptians um, found it loathsome to eat with Hebrews. So it would make some sense that that Yosef was welcome and in control of everything except food and mealtime um, because the Egyptians had a taboo about eating with Hebrews who they considered in that realm to be unclean. Because I know. We have, I think what it is, is we have documentation from Egypt about their religious system and some of their beliefs and taboos. And one of them included eating with folks who were not Egyptian. And Ivrim... Hebrews would have been considered one of those groups. And I know that I think, I think I learned it partly around the end of this story. When Joseph is eating, he's not eating with his brothers, right? And so I, I think that's why I learned it was around why wasn't he eating with mm-hmm. the brothers? Because as an Egyptian prince, he, he would not have been, he would have been rather caught dead than eating at a table with Ivrim. He's behaving as an Egyptian, and so I must have been in a footnote. I I promise I will remember as we get there to um, to mention it to you. I I know you mentioned anti-Semitic, but that's not unusual. There are many uh, eating customs that various peoples have that don't permit them to eat with others. Correct. That exists within the Jewish community. Right. I I don't know that it's anti-Semitic as much as it's just... Xenophobic. Something that xenophobic. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Because it wasn't, it wasn't especially Ivrim. You know, Ivrim were a, a Ivrim were a class of a caste or a class of people um, that would have been in the category of people with whom Egyptians won't eat. But it was not anti-Semitism. It was not uniquely Ivrim. And there's no, um, there's no Judaism yet, right? There's no right. It, it, they were they were considered a different people, a different culture, rather than different religions. Back then, didn't matter, right? Every, everyone had their religion, where they came, their gods, from where they came, including the Israelites. The Egyptians would have expected the Israelites to have their gods, right? It was more a cultural, and it's true. If we if we talk about early Christianity, right? One of the reasons Kashrut was not attractive to the followers of Jesus was because it meant they could not eat with people they were trying to convert to Jesusism, right? And so that was one of the main reasons Kashrut and those kinds of observances were gotten rid of 
um, because otherwise you really couldn't sit and eat together, which is, by the way, like Bert said, I just want to be clear, which is what Kashrut was designed to do. What the what the Egyptians would have done by not eating with the Hebrews, that is exactly the reason we have Kashrut, was so that we weren't eating with the Canaanites. Why can't we have pig? It is no more special in the Torah than any other prohibition. Why? Probably because the Canaanites had a pig roasting festival. You want to be sure the Israelites aren't sitting at that festival eating with them? No pig ever. And having too much fun of a certain nature was part of that, right? And so um, not eating those things would have been a food taboo to prevent Israelites from interacting, particularly at sacred festival times when they might start backsliding into, right, idol worship. All right. Well, that was fun. Um <laughs> So we get this last um, we get this last remark about Yosef. He was Yefetoar Vifemare. He was comely of outside and of um, how you saw him. Mare, his his it's about it's about vision um, pleasing to the eye. He, but it's 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 um it's what you see. So what do you, if you say someone's attractive, they're so we're going there. It's all of that. It's literally to, he was beautiful to look at. He was beautiful to look at. His appear that's what it is appearance. He was beautiful of appearance, right? So um so he's very attractive. Most likely, this is terminology that's talking about, and Peter Pitzela that we're going to look at, talks about it in terms of charisma. He's successful, so he's not just a, he's not just a pretty blonde. Sorry, Carol. Um, sorry. Um, he's not just a pretty face. He's seriously successful and beautiful. Those two things, particularly in a male, right, we know women who are successful are less liked often as they become more successful. But men who are successful and beautiful is serious charisma. Very serious charisma. All right. So one thing to remember about charisma, it engenders envy and desire and it gets you thrown into pits. <laughs> right? Because at the same time that you want to be around it, it can flip pretty quickly to you just want to strip them of that coat. Right? Of what makes them special. Okay. That's so That's the next going down. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what's about to happen. So two things. This exact phrase is used about, guess whom? His mother. His mother. This exact, it's, it is written in calligraphy by a beautiful calligrapher on parchment in my office. My Hebrew name is Rachel. Mm -hmm. um, this is exactly what is said of Rachel. A friend gave it to me for my ordination. Um, this thing, Rachel was Yifet Toar and Yifet Ma'a. Ma uh, she was beautiful 
of of appearance and um, that it suggests more than that. It also sets up what happens next. So he is definitely his mother's son. And it we have to be told this, A, so we know he's his mother's son. We know something way more about him now, the same way we did about Rachel. This description of Rachel goes to part of why her husband was so in love with her. Right? And, I mean, it says it says something about her. First of all, it's a sign of divine favor. But also, it, it tells you something about the power of that individual to affect others. So, Rachel, her beauty in some ways was tragic, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Because as beautiful as she was, she had to share her lover mm-hmm. with her sister, not by choice. Her sister bore sons, the only thing Rachel wanted, and Rachel dies young, bearing her second son. So, it always a tragic figure, I think. Um, let's wait and see what we think about Yosef. Right? Every year, just like Yaakov, I have different feelings about it. Um, whether or not this is a tragic story. It's a Yosef story. Alright, so, but what we know um, is that he is someone who draws the attention, as we're going to see, right, of folks based on his appearance, and I would assume based on his success as well. All right. Not, uh, verse 7. Wait. Can I go back one verse? Oh, it's going to cost Joseph you. Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. He said to his master's wife, Look, with me here, my master gives no thought to anything in this house, and all that he owns he has placed in my hands. He wields no more authority in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except yourself, since you are his wife. How then could I do this most wicked thing and sin before God? And much as she coaxed Joseph day after day, he did not yield to her request to lie beside her to be with her. Okay, so... Yosef, this is very blunt. Shichva imi is very blunt. Lishkov is the same word used when Dina has her encounter. It's, it, it, Are you saying it's cruder than life? Thank you. It is is crude. It is sexual, not necessarily in a good way, right? Um, so it, in, in when I was growing up, if you wanted to be crude about it, she got laid. Mm-hmm. He laid her, mm-hmm. right? So that's exactly this word, lishkov, to lie, right? So And it's a verb, right? Lie with me. It, it sounds even nice in the English, but it's, <laughs> it's not, right? I want to lay you. So lay down. It, it's an order. It's a... Crass and crude. There's no pretense here that she needs to, in any way, treat him as a human being, or, or you know, have conversation and go out for cocktails. You know, like it, first of all, she's not supposed to do this. This is a crime, right? She could be killed for this. Um, so it's bold, and it's crass, and it says something also about Yosef's station that she orders him to lie with her. 
Isn't that also against her husband? Not just that she's doing adultery, but that no, but that the husband has put Joseph in a particular status. Yes, and she is saying, no, 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 you're just a common slave. Yes, even if you have control of all of this, I am mistress of this house. Don't you start thinking, Mister Busy, right, that you are anything other than my property to do with as I please, right? Okay, so what does Yosef answer? Um, how could I possibly betray the trust of my master, who's put all of his household into my hands? How could I do that? And what do we have added here that's a little new? And sin against God. And how could I sin against God? This is new. This is not the Yosef we've seen earlier. This is. New. But, um, I guess this is a question of translation. Mm-hmm. I can't go back. So the, in the in the Green Book, it says "and thus sin against God." Uh-huh. Uh huh. As if it's a it's a, the question is is the sinning against God the act of having sex with the wife of of his master or or is it just is it just wrong by itself, or is it wrong because of his station with the master? If we go to the Hebrew, if we no, if we go to ancient Near Eastern law, mm-hmm. if, if she's married, it's already off, against the off, law. She's off, she's off limits. limits. Right. He's he's already committing a crime. Right. So against <clears throat> Potiphar. Mm-hmm. But that's not a sin against God, though. I mean, there are no commandments. It will be. Okay. <laughs> 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 There's no future. Like the Ten Commandments oh, haven't happened. Good. Is that so, one of the Noahide laws? It's not one. Yeah. Of the I, I, probably, but the, but the it. But remember, we we always have to remember real right, Ruben. Real history, lived history, and Torah history. So even though they didn't receive Torah yet. For the rabbis, they already knew Torah. <laughs> These people already knew Torah. Mm-hmm. He knew that was a sin. He doesn't have he doesn't have to be at Sinai to know that sleeping with Potiphar's wife is a hate before Yehovahe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is written by people who have had Torah for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned before how the theme of hands and house, etc., and blessing. So this is related to the blessing part of the four things that you talked about. Tell me. Well, blessing comes from God, presumably, and now he's talking about God. So Okay, so like not things. only would it be wrong because you're off limits and you're the wife of my master, but the reason I have this relationship with my master is because I have been blessed. I got And somehow. I would be betraying that source of blessing by doing this and betrayal in that language is sin. Okay, I'm sold. Is it significant that yud heh is not the Hebrew word used here, but lelohim? Tell You tell me. <laughs> I'm asking rabbis. <laughs> I mean, let, what do you think? Do you think it's well, important Lelohim. that this is the plural name for God? Well, not only that, but it... it can also mean wider than Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. 
All the if such a thing exists, well, it would probably be a name that she could relate to. She won't be able to relate to Adonai. Because Adonai is kind of like a Hebrew specific name. Whereas Elohim is just, you know, she's, you know, she runs into a slave from some other community and they've got an Elohim and this, this Hebrew has an Elohim and so. Because could you also like translate it. this before the gods? Yes. Yeah, or, right. Which is similar. Something that she can relate to. But what I like we it. do. Well, it doesn't seem, I mean, doesn't seem to matter to her, <laughs> right? Um, so, so in a way, this is an, if that's the case, I mean, on some level, isn't he, even if it's not, even if it were Yudhei Buffet, isn't he in some way saying something insulting to her? I understand this to be sinful. What's your problem? <laughs> right? But what are your standards that you don't? Right? You're a married woman. It should be a sin, even in her religion. It should be considered an affront to some god that she is violating her marriage situation. Yes? So he's insulting her subtly. Or maybe not so subtly. It seems like almost as much or maybe a worse violation that she would then turn around and implicate him for doing what he didn't do. What, what, why is it worse because of that? Well, because she's now not just being self-indulgent, but she's actually profoundly affecting somebody else's life to do negative. I mean, it turns out okay, but that's a moment, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's a reason it turns out, right? Um, so, so, I mean, I kind of want to hold... I believe... I don't, I don't know that it makes it worse. I think it motive, it may even motivate her more. I've just, I've just told you as the mistress of the house to do something. And you not only tell me what I'm suggesting is unethical, immoral as regards your husband, but also before the gods, it's a sin. What that is motivating. For her to betray him. Who she think you are? So angry. <laughs> right. Like he's insulted her twice. She's been spurned. She's been spurned. He's told her no. He's disobeyed her command. He's acting as her equal. He's reminding her she's betraying her husband and asking him to betray her husband and that it's a sin. That's a lot of motivation, isn't it? And he says you're unattractive. <laughs> And by implication, Sheldon is saying, you are not beautiful enough or desirable enough to have me overcome all of those reluctances to sleep with you. Right. Absolutely right. I just came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> I kept looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and by this, what if she said something Right. And it also says she does this day after so day. I was just getting there. Oh. Verse 10 says oh, yeah. it doesn't happen just once. Day after day. Day after day, she tries to enticed him. So he disobeyed her order. Every day? Every day. 
But then it starts to be something else, doesn't it? Why do you keep ordering a slave to do something that he's not? You call your husband and say, he's defied me. Obviously, she can't do that in this case. But you'd either quit or or try to get rid of the slave. But it's seduction, right? It's not that. She wants him. She wants him really badly. And it may not just be sexual, obviously. She wants, possibly, right, the, the power, control of being able to get what she wants from him. But she wants this. Again, fuel for what happens. All right. What about what you were saying earlier? Is someone like this engenders jealousy and envy and acting against it? And here he was, in some ways, more powerful than she, because he controlled everything but that portion of the household. Was she reacting to that? I, I have to believe it's part of it. Okay. He's risen meteorically mm-hmm. in the house, and I have to believe there's some part of her that's like, let's just be clear, okay. right? That. He has the ear of her husband. They're business partners. They're spending all their time together. And he's beautiful. Like, there, there's, I have to believe, yes, yeah, some, some act of wanting to put him, put him down in his place. Yes? So, in ancient times, in that household, would she have taken a, a powerful role with her husband that Joseph has usurped? So, partly it would depend on the relationship. They certainly had different roles. I have to believe that him rising so fast and being a foreigner and lots of other things probably upset the order of what was expected. It, you know, it's, it's, it's unusual enough that it, it charges this whole situation. This is not just a normal steward that's hired. But we're really powerful. Would they just, in a powerful household, would they say, hey, I like you, let's fuck? I mean, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. That, uh, presumably, they could. She's putting herself at great risk because it's a crime. But presumably, she had some authority, oh, yes, over slaves. But there would have been a unique relationship between the master of the house and his steward. That if you watch Downton Abbey... <laughs> The lady of the house would never presume to go to the Lord's steward and mess with anything between them. But she'd go to the chauffeur. But she'd go to the chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, do you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's an interesting question you're raising, which I think is here, that it's a tangled set of loyalties and relationships and power dynamics, which is Joseph's whole story. The, the tangling and, and crisscrossing of, of expectations about power and reversals of role, right? The, it, this is the whole story. And I think we could take your question and map out the whole arc of this story just talking about power. Who has it, who doesn't, who's supposed to, but loses it, who shouldn't have it, but gets it, right? And and it's complicated, Um but I think there's definitely a special relationship between Potiphar and Yosef in the house that she is violating. Of all the major players here, she has no name. She's because she doesn't matter. She's she's not. I mean, a, all the other major players in these stories have names. She's not a major player. 
She's an agent. Well, maybe she thinks she is. <laughs> she thinks she is, maybe. <clears throat> she's an agent of what happens next to Yosef. Right. And her only, only thing that matters about her is that she's Eshet Potiphar. Okay. She's Mrs. Potiphar. That is all that matters. Could she have wanted his child? He's a beautiful guy. She has a beautiful, doesn't say they have any children. Maybe that was part she of She wants him as a stud. <laughs> it's possible. We don't know how old Mrs. Potiphar is. She could be an old woman. We, we have, she, we have no idea. <laughs> I'm glad you said, or she could be 50. Thank you. Old woman or 15. Uh, oh, I thought you said more 50. I was like, thank you for that disjunctive. Or she could be, she could be a young woman of 50. Either one. So, um, or 70. So even, so this could be a motivating factor for sure. She's still not allowed to do it. Right. You know, she's still not allowed. Her sexuality belongs to her husband. I mean, to what extent in ancient Egypt? I don't know, but it, it would, I can't imagine it would have been so different from um, the ancient Near East. Okay, let's move on. How does this happen? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to 11. On one such day when he came into the house to do his work, and not one of the people of the household was there in the house. She took hold of him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. He left his garment in her hand, fled, and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she summoned her household servants and spoke to them, saying, See, he brought us a Hebrew man to toy with us. He came to me to lie with me, and I crowd, cried out in a loud voice. When he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment with me and fled and ran outside. And she kept his garment with her until his master came home. She spoke to him in this manner, saying, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came to me to toy with me. But when I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment near me and fled and ran outside. All right, so let's look at this incident. So... Uh, one day, he comes into the house to do his business. She sees that nobody's around. It is her opportunity. She catches hold of him by big doe. Big doe biyada. His beged is in her hands. All right, again, we've got hands, right? We're going to see it through the rest of the story. His beged is in her hands. Beged implies Clothing, it does not imply cloak. Okay? That's a distinction that's important. This is not, she grabs him and he can come out of it. This is his clothes. <laughs> right? His baguette is in her hand. And what does she say at that point? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Right? She grabs his 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 baguette and says, "Shichva imi, lie with me." I fell for it for thirty seconds. Really. <laughs> <Point even. laughs> Blanche will explain to him later. All right. Vayazov bigdo biyada. Right. Um, and but he left his garment in her hand, so he he comes out. She's got him. How can he get away? Like he's got to come out of his clothes that are now left in her hand, and he runs outside. 
All right, now, what state is he in when he runs outside? Somewhat naked. Yeah. Somewhat naked. He is extremely vulnerable at this moment. He's coming out of the master's residence, <laughs> half naked. He's already in danger. It's already over. Let's put it that way. It's all the minute he leaves his clothing in her hands and runs outside. It's over. It could also be over, however, for Mrs. Potiphar, who gets that right away. She's not stupid. So now she knows he's gone outside half naked. She's holding his clothes, right? What does she do immediately? She screams for her servants, and what does she say to them? Look, look what? Look at the garment. Ah, mm, right. She says, "Ru, see, hevilanu ish ivri litzachek banu." He brought us an ivri man, litzachek banu. How, what do we know about this word "litzachek"? To play with us. Is All right. That related to Yitzhak. Of course. Of course. Yitzhak with Rivka, Yitzhak and Yishmael. We know this word "litzachek" to play, to dally with us. What is she saying? The he she's blaming her husband, master of the house. He what my awful husband. Idiot guy has done to whom us. Well, how's it to us? Because he brought the slave there. To what? What's who's us? She and her servants, maybe. Ah, she and her servants who would have been female. For this to have any weight, it must be she's talking about other female. The us is. Her and other female slaves. He brought this animal because we know about those Hebrews, right? Think about African American slaves and what was said about them. Same thing. They are virile, they are beautiful and desirable. But what happens if a white woman, right, in any way, right? The, it flips quickly into that desirability and beauty and virile strength is animal-like. That's exactly what's happening here. She says he brought that Negro slave in here to toy with us because we know that's what they do. You know that's what they do. You know how they are, right? It's exactly what's happening here. So what has she just done? She's shifted the blame to. Her husband, but she she has to be convincing about it. So what is she trying to do? She's trying to rally the other slaves and the household to support her position. Not just me. He would have he would have come after you next. He started here. You think that's where it was going to end? You were next. It's like they're here to you know rape our daughters. Exactly. And thank God I stopped him by screaming. I have saved us all. It's her only play. She's smart. It's her only play here. It's also it takes a risk. Nerve too. It's not, not just smart, but it takes nerve. Oh, right. Well, Serious nerve. Nerve or fear. Well, this was <laughs> Both, probably nerve and fear. Right. So when he heard me, he when he heard me screaming, 
right? I prevented it. I stopped it, right? He left his garment with me and got away and fled outside. David? It's hard to believe that she would have cared about the thoughts of the other slaves in the sense they don't matter. They're her property as well. She's just setting the scene for when her husband comes home. I think to give authenticity Sure. She's about to do it. But, but the spin that she puts on it assures some level of support in the house for her version. Rather than the slaves going, <laughs> look, Potiphar, I, I hate to be the one to break this to you, but this is not the first guy we've seen running out of here half naked. She buys their loyalty and right has them buy into her version of the events by saying, I saved us all. This does to me. This feels more like a power that she more yeah. than a sexual thing. It was a power thing between her and Joseph, and she ultimately got spurned and yeah. just said, "I'm going to do him in." Right? Oh, the sexual, oh, let's be clear, people. Yeah, there is never, never a separation of sex and power. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as sex without power. Play, ever. We choose to give, and when we're in love and we love the other person, we choose to give over our power. But any situation like this is always and only about power. Sex is simply the vehicle. Think rape, think, think office place harassment, which is what this is, mm-hmm. right? Why is it called harassment? Because you really don't have a choice, even if you agree, because there's too many power dynamics at play. That's why it's illegal. All right. Uh, so she, the master comes home. She's still got Joseph's garment because he could go to Potiphar himself. She's got to have evidence. She told him the same story. The Hebrew slave whom you brought into our house came with me to dally with me. But when I screamed at the top of my voice, he left his garment and fled outside. This is echoing who saying what to whom. That man you brought to me has caught, tried to, tried to have something not nice go down here. Who, where do we see this? Monica Lewinsky. Okay, I was thinking more along the lines of Adam and Eve, but okay. Monica Lewinsky. She has the, she has the dress. Eve blaming the serpent, absolutely. Not only not only Eve and the serpent. Adam Adam says to God, "This woman that you brought to me, she told me to eat it." That's it's exactly what's here, right? It's it's a classic move in Torah, right? Moshe. To God, this people that you brought out of Egypt, right? Really? It's your fault, essentially. Classic move. Assigning blame. Classic move. Avoiding responsibility. Avoiding responsibility. Classic move. All right. So when Potiphar hears the story that his wife told him, thus and so did your slave do to me, he was understandably, living, right? So Joseph's master had him put in prison where the king's prisoners were confined. But even while he was there in prison, God was with Joseph. 
and extended kindness to him and disposed the chief jailer favorably toward him. The chief jailer put in Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in that prison. And, <laughs> and he was the one to carry out everything that was done there. The chief jailer did not supervise anything that was in Joseph's charge because God was with him and whatever he did, God made successful. So another uh, incident of Joseph descending once again, right? He's risen in the house of Potiphar and of course descends now into the Beit Sohar, the, the, after losing his garment, after, after losing his garment again. So Bert brings us to another important point. Joseph is stripped of his garment again, once by his brothers, now by someone else who has power in his household where he's living, who strips him again. His coat that he was stripped of when he was thrown into the pit. What happened to it? Dipped in blood and returned to his death. Gets dipped in blood and shown to his father to deceive his father into believing he's dead. He's stripped of his beged here in order for what? For her to deceive her husband into thinking something about Joseph. This is the theme. So Amy is bringing us to the the point. What's happening ultimately is Joseph keeps being stripped of identities because eventually he's got to find out or discover or we discover with him who's underneath all of that. And that is what we see two weeks from now when he meets his brothers. So hold, let's hold that in mind because I know you'll be here. But isn't it also like when Moses goes out and he, and, and he gets stripped also, all his clothes come off in the desert, like every roll, well, he's got, he's from the Pharaoh's house. And then he, they talk about him having all this embellishment and all these friends, you know. And then he's in the desert and he has none of that on. That's, isn't that when you really accept God? Maybe God's prepping. So what what I would do is I would map out how does clothing how how is clothing symbolic of either covering over how is it symbolic of status how is it symbolic of a change in status right we could do a whole thesis and it's been done actually there is one done by Lori Lefkowitz Dr. Lori Lefkowitz who did a whole thing about how does our how do the garments in Torah play into masks and identities and how, what does that mean for us with all of our identities and what does the stripping away mean? I don't know that Yosef ever gets there. So I'm not ready to say yes because I don't know that he gets there. If I read it tragically, he never gets there. He's stuck in the clothes of the vizier of Egypt. He, he doesn't get to be, who is Yosef? Is is he even? You know what I mean? Like what 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 is he? Who is he? Okay, so but it's a great way for us to look at how Torah uses 
that, um, clothing and all those symbols of station and the loss of them, it is all over this story. And with Tamar, right? So that's when I talked about garments and hiding and about Tamar. Okay, who's inserted in the middle of this narrative? All right, go to page 212 on your handout. Right? All right, starting at the very top, second sentence. He is stripped. This is Peter Pizzola, our father's wells. This is the man who teaches bibliodrama. He, he takes the scene from Torah and has people act it out and then starts interviewing the characters. The group interviews the characters and, and busts the text wide open by saying, Joseph, stop. What are you feeling right now? What, what are you thinking? Right? So, and then, so you actually enter the scene and you enter the text and it's a very powerful, very powerful way to study Torah and have a group experience that is often, people often leave in tears, you know, like it's very powerful. So, so he's talking about this story and how he's done it in bibliodrama and, you know, some of the themes that have emerged. So he is stripped, not merely of his cloak of favoritism, but of all his illusions as well. This is when he's thrown into the pit. This is the pit, the dry well, the depths. What do we know about a well? What does a well symbolize? Right. Only if <laughs> he's thrown into a pit. It's not just a pit, it's a dry well. He's thrown into the symbol of life that is dry. It's death. This is the descent into the darkness. This is Persephone descending. This is winter. This is death. This is rebirth. All right. All of those metaphors are absolutely at work here. That's what the story is about. This is the pit, the dry well, the depths. And this is not the last time he will know this place. Drop down to the third paragraph. But his fortunes turn. Joseph the slave is elevated to the position of major domo in the house of Potiphar, an Egyptian dignitary. Drop to the end of that paragraph. Joseph is immediately stripped of another cloak. This time, his suit of office thrown into prison, and abandoned. Next paragraph. A second time we hear how he prospers. God was with Joseph, we read, and brought him to favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Again, Joseph rises from the depths and becomes second in command. Next paragraph. Then a third time, this pattern of rise and fall is repeated. In prison, Joseph befriends two inmates. We know what happens. He interprets dreams for them. They're supposed to when they get, when the one that gets out is going to live, he's supposed to do what? That's in our story. We didn't read it, but he's supposed to tell Pharaoh about Joseph, that this great, there's this great dream interpreter, right? Which is a big deal in Egypt. What happens when the guy gets out? The text tells us he forgets Joseph and he is further abandoned. All right. We're going to stop there and turn our paper over. To page 274. This is Aviva Zorenberg, her book, The Beginnings of Desire, her book on Genesis, which we have studied lots before because it's one of the most masterful things ever created. We're going to drop down to the paragraph that starts the problems, yes? So Peter Pitzela just told us about this rise, descent, rise, descent, rise, descent, and the last abandonment is Joseph is forgotten. 
The problems of remembering and forgetting, says Zornberg, informed the whole narrative. The butler, in spite of Joseph's pleas, does not remember to mention him to Pharaoh. He did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. But this failure signals a moment when he does, in fact, remember certain aspects of Joseph in a context where such reconstructions have become essential to Pharaoh and indeed to the whole country. Right. So he forgets Joseph until Pharaoh has a need that could affect the whole country. Then he remembers an aspect of Joseph. The Oh, dream interpretation. Right. That guy right is a good dream interpreter his memory is fragmentary right that's all he remembers the dream interpreter but reassembles a joseph who is both non-threatening and a talented interpreter the clever fool motif similarly joseph has disappeared down a pit into the deathly oblivion of which the Talmud says, this is a legal treatise, if one fell into a pit full of snakes and scorpions, we bear witness, meaning that that person is presumed dead. So his wife, his widow, his wife could go marry someone else. Just being thrown into the pit and being left there, according to the Talmud, you're, you're legally dead. He has the status of a dead person. He is lost to memory, his own as well as his family's conscious memory. Thomas Mann describes his dismemberment as, quote, cutting into very little pieces his trust, his whole notion of the world. A wholeness and intuitive ordering of experience is disrupted forever. So let's think about that for a minute. It's almost as if throughout the entire the entire story, even when he sort of at the end makes it to the top, uh, Joseph has no agency uh, ever. He's he's uh, you know he's acted upon he's acted upon by his brothers. He is you know sold into slavery. He's always even when he rises to a high position in Potiphar's household, he's playing a role. You know he's still a Hebrew slave playing a role. You know, he gets thrown into prison again. He interprets dreams. He gets forgotten. Right. He never, he never does. He can never do anything for himself. He's always brought out and made to play a role. And he never, and he never sort of like emerges from that cycle. Yeah, but the but the, the teaching point here must have been if ever wrote this, but God was on his side. <laughs> so that so both are true, right? Because. All of us are acted upon. None of us control ultimately what happens. We just don't. We emerge to play another role. Mother, widow, sister. We we don't choose so many of the roles we wind up playing or what happens to us. What we choose is a perspective about them that either affirms or doesn't the idea that there is meaning? That there is, in your words, God was with him. That's the way. Sarah? In terms of agency, isn't Joseph the one who has the foresight to see that the Egyptians put away food for a time of hunger and then 
he saves his family by using some of that. Right. So that's agency. Well, it? except that, well, perhaps, but um, he's also kind of the, the um, you know, the clever intern coming up with a great solution for his boss. And his life hangs in the balance. If he doesn't interpret that dream, if he isn't valuable to Pharaoh, he's dispensable. He's disposable, right? So it's by means of his skill that he is relevant or valuable to Pharaoh. Does that say anything about Joseph wanting to be a dream interpreter, right? So, but again, I think this is life. This is, it's all a mix, isn't it? All right, so I want to go to 275 quickly. The we, I want you to go home and read the paragraph before this. It took me a long time to chew it through um, to really digest it. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It's brilliant that she pulls this in here. Walter Benjamin. She pulls Walter Benjamin in here. But go to the paragraph, the weaving, right? The weaving work of forgetting that Benjamin, so this author that, that wrote the paragraph before, so strikingly describes in this passage is the experience of Joseph as he involuntarily reassembles fragments of his repressed past. He involves his brothers in his reconstruction of the past, imprisoning Simeon as he was imprisoned, insisting on Benjamin's being brought down to Egypt as he was brought down. He weeps three times in the course of a protracted charade in which the past returns to him in terror and pity. And as he experiences the new reweavings from the loom of forgetting, he subjects his brothers too to the radical anxiety of loss and recollection. So it's, I want you to spend some time with that paragraph at home because what she's talking about is the warp and woof of forgetting and remembering. And that those two, the warp and woof, are the fabric of life, of his life, of our identities. And he's forgetting some things, but then he puts them together. He reenacts it all with his family. All the things he's trying to escape and forget and move away from and leave behind. He reenacts it all on his family. Don't we? Don't we? I'm over that. Really? Ask your daughter if you're so over what happened to you when you're right. So because we we acted out again in some other ways. It may be to try to do it better than what was done to us, but but in so many ways maybe. That this is a very profound things to say about the Holocaust and Holocaust survivors, but also the Jewish people as a whole after the Holocaust about trying to reconstruct from fragments of memory where we came from in Europe and Poland and Ukraine and just just hit me that this and that we're still in the process of doing it. And we say we're over it, are we? <laughs> Go talk to us about something that terrifies us like Israel. We can't even have a rational conversation about Israel. Why? Because we're still dealing with the terror of Auschwitz. That's why. And, and also the broken memory of the past. Absolutely. We're a people who constantly is dealing with the fragments 
of memory and destruction and fragmentation and destruction and reconstruction and destruction. And that's who we are. That's one of the things we offer the world. We're still here. There's 30 of you in this room. We're still here. That is one of the things I think we offer that is profound to the world. Um, is that the takeaway here? I'm trying to think about what I would... Someone said to me, what did you learn today? <laughs> so so let's... Let, is, is he a dupe? Is he so clever? Is turn he your page over, because... I'm not going to leave you, God forbid, hanging. Good question, David. You know, I'm not going to just leave you. To page 213. See, I have my little numbers in what order we're supposed to read these things, okay? In my number four, go to the middle of the first paragraph on 213, Peter Pizzola. He's talking about his bibliodrama groups where they've studied these, you know, texts by acting them out and, and going deep. In our groups, we have sought to discover what story he tells himself by which to maintain his poise and spirit among his disasters. What does he do to stave off despair? No God has ever addressed him, made a covenant with him, or promised him a redeeming future. Whatever got our patriarchs through, our matriarchs through, doesn't happen for Joseph. Right, we went to this tearing away of memory, a fragmentation. But he's in the pit. He rises up. He's in the pit. He rises up. What what gets him through? He's never been told you're going to have progeny like the stars of the heaven. I'm going to give you this land. He's never been told that. He's been told nothing about a redeeming future. What gets him through? No revelation upholds him, nor can he summon an angel to grapple with him and give him his name. His wounds are inward and concealed. He lacks a blessing. So far, his dreams have led him to a dungeon. Next paragraph. In the end, we see him as a man who remembers his dreams and puts his trust in them. He finds some center deep within his bewilderment, and there he finds a kind of peace. Like Joseph, we reach for what sustains us, through our various imprisonments, what restores us from our derelictions. We cannot name it precisely, but we share the experience of it in our group. His Torah study group, our Torah study group. We cannot name it precisely, but we share the experience of it in this group. May we be this Shabbat, may we be strengthened in our commitment to being present for one another as we help locate for one another the meaning, uh, the hope, the essence at the center of our own imprisonments and derelictions. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.